Let's pray real quick. Father, as we look at your word, we ask for you to open our hearts to it. Wonderful truths are here for us today, and we just pray for your grace to understand them, to take them to heart, to apply them. We all have different needs, Father. Some of us need you in our lives. Some of us just need to think carefully about where, where you should be in our lives and who Jesus is and what he brings to us. And we help ask your help in doing that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, actually, in John chapter 3, uh, we, we heard the most important truth that human ears can actually hear. So just back up a little bit to chapter 3, and let me read from verse 14 one more time to get our context sort of set here. Jesus um, said to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 15 and verse 16 there. There is eternal life. And where is it found? It's found in the Son of God. Now, when it says whoever believes in him, who exactly is whoever? Is whoever like whoever? Like anybody? Yeah. Anybody. That's what it is. Anybody. Even scandalous Sinners, yep, them too. It's for them too. Today we're going to see that in John chapter 4, and this is a wonderful chapter. So it, it's actually about missions, but we're not going to get to that part today, but um, that's where it's actually heading, about sharing the gospel of Jesus. But John, John the writer here approaches the subject of missions through the story of this one encounter. Okay, so again, it's a conversation. Like in chapter 3, another conversation? Yeah, we're going to have another conversation. But this is a very different conversation than the one we saw in chapter 3. So the main conversation in chapter 3, the source of all those wonderful words I just read, was a conversation between Jesus and a deeply religious man, a scholar, a man of the scriptures, a, a leader of the Jewish people, a theologian. And he came to Jesus looking for answers. Nicodemus was his name. Now that, that you think would be a pretty high level conversation. Something you'd really want to pay attention to. Two men, Jesus and Nicodemus, who both had a love for Moses, who both believed in living a righteous life, who believed the same scriptures. Both men descended from Abraham. Both men sharing the same culture, taught the same traditions as, ch- as children. Both worshipped this at the at the same temple celebrating the same feasts and what makes that conversation really interesting is that one man was a scholar and a leader of Israel and the other man was the Messiah the Son of God the Savior of the world that's what makes it really interesting well in chapter 4 the Messiah the Savior of the world has a very different conversation with a Samaritan 
that means a person not recognized as a Jew by the Jews. Not just a Samaritan, but a woman. Not just a woman, but a woman of low reputation. She's probably not well educated, not well known, not wealthy, not welcome, even in polite society among her own people. Is there eternal life for her? Yes. She's included in whoever. And that's why John tells the story. So chapter 4 starts off with a, a geographical change. So all of that we've been studying so far, well not all of it, most of it's taken place in Judea. We had a wedding up in Cana in Galilee and then back in Judea and all kinds of things going on. But it's still only a few weeks after Jesus first presented himself to the world as the Messiah. Still very early in the public ministry of Jesus. And Jesus finds out at the beginning of chapter 4 that the Pharisees who already started to oppose him after he showed up in the temple and drove out the money changers. They are aware of his growing popularity so he decides to head back into Galilee. He has a lot of preaching to do and he doesn't want to get arrested and uh, killed before the time. He knows exactly where he's supposed to be so he's doing, he's got a plan, he's working. So Galilee is a safer base of operations for him. Uh, much a very large population up there so he's got a lot of work to do up there and as long as John the Baptist is still free Judea is going to have a strong witness so Jesus heads for Galilee so chapter 4 verse 1 therefore when the when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were he didn't personally baptize anybody that's so you couldn't go around you know well, I got baptized by Jesus. And wouldn't that be nice? He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And verse 4 is sort of a key thing here. He had to pass through Samaria. Now when it says he had to pass through Samaria, that was not the only way to go. So he didn't have to in that sense. It wasn't a geographical have to going on there. Most Jews just didn't like going through Samaria because the Jews looked down on the Samaritans and the Samaritans weren't exactly crazy about them either. And there's a lot of background to that. I want to give you a little background because it actually plays a part in the conversation Jesus is going to have. So kind of tune in a little bit for history or tune out and come back, okay? <laughs> but the Samaritans go all the way back to the 8th century BC when the Assyrian Empire came. Israel was divided into two kingdoms, remember Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians came in 722 BC and took away all the people, the ten tribes that lived in the northern kingdom, into captivity. Now of course there might have been a few spotted people left around there, but they tr truly moved the population. That's what they used to do, these empires. So um, they took them into captivity. Now these empires, when they did this sort of thing, didn't just move people out, they moved other people in. So they didn't want that land to go to waste. It's a way of, in fact this still occurs in certain modern situations around the world. You take these people out of their homeland and stick them somewhere else, they have to learn to survive there. So they're not going to be in the mood to rebel. So you take people from there and move them somewhere else, you know. So the people were moved out of Samaria and they took other peoples and moved them into Samaria, okay. And that would keep them kind of off balance there so they could build their empire without these people defending their homeland anymore. They don't have a homeland anymore. So it was actually a pretty clever strategy. Wicked but, but clever. 
Well, 2 Kings chapter 17 has a really long section in it about who the people are that were brought into that northern part of Israel, that were the, the, where Samaria is. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And they asked the king, well, kind of an odd thing happens in 2 Kings chapter 17. There's kind of a lion plague going on, like more people than usual being eaten by lions. This is from the people that were put into Samaria. They said, hey, we're getting eaten by lions here. So they actually contacted the king of the Assyrians and they, they said, uh, can you help us with this problem? And they concluded that it was, well, it's because you don't know the local God. This is the way pagans think, right? And so you're not pleasing him, so he's letting lions eat you. So, um, so this is actually what it says. The, the king of Assyria made a commandment and he said, take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile and let him go and live there and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So this is 2 Kings 17 28. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel. That's in the northern part right just over the border from this southern part and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So and then 2 King lists all the places that they put their gods when they came and so they're worshiping all these different things but they're going to add in the, the God of Israel right so and it even mentions the Sepharvites who burned their children in the fire they sacrificed their own children by burning them to Adram Melech and Anam Melech the gods of the Sepharvaim that's one of the groups that came there and then it says of these new newcomers it says they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the house of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. So they became worshipers of the true God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the, the God of Israel. And at the same time they committed idolatry with their other gods including burning children to them. Just like the Israelites had been doing which actually led to the captivity. Because they were worshiping those gods before the, or some gods like them, before they even came, those people came. So that's the very thing that led them being taken away. And God had warned them and warned them and warned them and finally they were gone. So these people that came in with all their gods, now we're willing to add the, the local god to them. This is how they think. They started, they married into the people that were still left behind, the, the scattered few. And um, they became their separate sort of people group. Then a few generations later, the Babylonians came and took away the southern kingdom, right? Because they did exactly the same thing the northern kingdom did. They worshipped idols. They even had idols in God's temple, all kinds of horrible sins. So they were taken away into captivity as well. Seventy years later, the faithful come back. So a, a large group comes back and settle in the Holy Land and are going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Well, in Ezra chapter 4, it says that the Samaritans, the people that were from the over 100 years before situation, almost 200 years before that had been planted there, they offered to help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But the people that came back said, no way, we don't want your help, stay away from us. So the Samaritans started causing problems for them with, uh, with the Babylonians, writing letters and all kinds of trouble like that. So then around um, 400 BC, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim to worship Yahweh the God of Israel along with all their other gods. Um, that's actually not what they're supposed to do but they're doing it. 
So, but the Jews had rebuffed them, so they didn't have a relationship with them to, ha- to come to the temple in Jerusalem. And eventually, um, what happened was that, so then, this gets really complicated. Eventually, the Persians overthrow the Babylonians, and the Greeks overthrow the Persians. And the Greeks, one of Alexander the Great's generals, Seleucus, he, the Seleucid Empire, comes down and brutally conquers the Jews uh, the, and, and uh, horribly treats them, uh, slaughters a pig on the, on the altar of the, and the temple, all kinds of horrible things are going on. The Jews eventually rebel and win their freedom. Now this is the time between the Old and New Testaments this is going on. They win their freedom and their leader named John Hyrcanus attacked the Samaritans because now they could have their own temple and protect it and they've got that pagan temple in the Holy Land, that half pagan temple in the Holy Land that, that, well it shouldn't be there, it's meant to worship the true God but you're not supposed to be worshiping in another temple than the one in Jerusalem. So John Hyrcanus leads an army to the Samaritans, destroys the city of Gerizim, tears down that temple brick by brick, stone by stone and it's not, and it's just left to nothing. And then the Romans come in and they impose themselves on that whole area and they like peace so they force everybody to tolerate each other's religion. So that kind of ends that. But what do you think the Samaritans, how do you think they feel about the Jews? Well pretty much how the Jews feel about them. So when you get to the New Testament time that's where things are. And this animosity is very present. They have nothing to do with each other. They don't talk to each other. Most Jews, if they're going from Judea where Jerusalem is and want to go north to Galilee, don't go through Samaria. Okay? That you can go across the Jordan and go up and back over or you can go to the coast and go up. But they didn't like to pass through Samaria. Now they might if they didn't care or they were in a hurry or something but mostly they didn't do that. So that's kind of where this fits into our story here. So Verse 4 says Jesus went through Samaria and the text actually says he had to, like necessary. It was necessary for him to do that. So, but it wasn't a physical necessity, so it must have been a spiritual necessity, right? So he desired to reach the Samaritans with the good news of the kingdom and it may be, it may be that it was a necessity just to reach this one woman. Maybe that's what the Holy Spirit from the Father told Jesus you're going to meet this woman there so go there and preach to her. Share the gospel with her. So Jesus says everything on the Father's timetable ministered through the Holy Spirit to him. So he goes, verse 5, so he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus being wearied from his journey was sitting thus by the well and it was about the sixth hour. Jacob's well. How many centuries did God's people draw their water from Jacob's well? I mean it's been a very long time, very important place. So Jesus arrives there, plum tuckered out. That's a Hebrew phrase. No, not really. <laughs> he's very tired and uh, he's a human being, you know, fully man and uh, been going a long way. So he sits down. And the sixth hour, now if, it, if John is writing by Jewish reckoning, that would be noon, okay? If he's writing by Roman reckoning, it would be 6 p.m., but most people think it's noon that he's referring to that. So, um, noon would not be the time people would tend to come to draw water because it's the heat of the day and that's not when you usually do that in the morning. And uh, 
there's a Samaritan woman that comes to fetch water at that time, at, at, the, at noon, if that's the right day, time period. And a man is sitting there that she doesn't know, and that's Jesus, and we're never told this woman's name. But this is the longest conversation recorded in all of the Gospels between Jesus and an individual person. So it's important. She is important. What she represents is important. And what Jesus tells her is the most important thing of all. So that's why I want you to start paying attention again. Okay. So there's a similarity between this conversation and the conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Both conversations reveal the difference between religion and a living faith. Nicodemus, oh my goodness, he had religion, right? The tradition, the ritual, performance, living out the norms established by centuries of rabbinical teaching. It was a respectable religion, but Jesus told him you need to be born again. That's not it. You need to have a living relationship with God. The Samaritan woman Her religion is that of a person outside polite society. It's all she would have had is what she picked up as a child and hears from people that she knows, which would be her people. And she has a past, we find out, a long string of broken relationships. And some suggest that she comes to the well at noon to avoid the comments and the looks from the respectable respectable women that would gather their water in the morning. So she goes at a time when she would be there by herself to avoid that, the scowl and the comments and things like that. What was she like, this woman, personally? I mean, what was she like? Well, we, you know, when you read things, you don't have the tone and the inflection all the time. You have just the words. So you sort of have to read in a little bit to know what she was really like. But it's always interesting how she's interpreted. You know, like in dramatic versions of the women at the well encounter with Jesus. How, how is she portrayed in dramas? It's always interesting. So the words are, are usually right, but the attitude. She's often pic- pictured as a timid, uh, ashamed, uh, beaten down sort of outsider. But I think when you read this, it doesn't, she doesn't come across that way to me. Um, she's, she, you know, the British have a word cheeky. <laughs> I, th- I think that's her. I think that's her. I think she's cheeky. Cheeky means um, impudent, kind of playfully impudent. You know, like you, s- you say your thing, right? You, you're, you're not intimidated by class structure and the normal order of society. You don't talk to lords and ladies that way. Well, she would talk to lords and ladies that way. You know, she's cheeky. So um, I think that's closer to what we see here. Uh, she's a woman that can give as good as she gets. Like, let me put it like that. So just based on the conversation, I, I can see a cheeky side. <laughs> to her. She's not shy. Uh, She engages with Jesus very easily. In fact, he just asks for some water and she turns it into a conversation. She's the one that initiates actually a full conversation. So she comes to draw water. Jesus is there. He doesn't have a vessel to draw the water with to tie onto the rope and lower it down and all that stuff. So he says, give me a drink. It's kind of like, it made me think right away of Abraham's servant that was sent to find a wife for Isaac, remember? And he goes back to their people and Rebecca's there drawing water out of a well and he asks her to give him a drink and she gives him a lot. He, he actually asks for like a sip, the, the language used there, and she gives him a full drink, you know, like a lot. Very similar situation except there's a big difference here. The kind of 
familiar contact with a Samaritan for a Jew everybody understood would be a defiling thing. So for a woman to, a Samaritan despised person, not for her, just for being Samaritan, a Jew would not take from her pouring him a drink. She wouldn't take from a vessel used by a Samaritan. That would be a very unusual thing. She's unclean, kind of like the way they thought about Gentiles, right? Unclean. Maybe worse, maybe worse than a Gentile because there's specifically bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. So she's quite surprised that he asked her for water and she reminds Jesus of this animosity that exists. She says, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And she might have said that in a cheeky way. <laughs> Jesus answers pretty amazing. I mean he fully takes advantage of her, her cheek by, by dropping the uh, if you knew who I am bomb you know that kind of thing. So watch how he leads her now. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well that's out of nowhere. Just about, yeah she's just going to a drink and there's a guy sitting there and he's telling her he could give her living water. Living water eh? <laughs> What's she thinking? She's intrigued there's, but she, there's nothing typical about this strange man so um, she plays with him a little bit in verse 11 she, uh, because his claim it, it's pretty out there living water what is that you know um, she heard him say that he has a gift of God and he calls it living water and he can give it to her if she asks so she plays along maybe, maybe with a little bit of a wry tone in, in verse 11 she says to him sir you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob are you who gave us the well and drank of, it, drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So she's asking two questions. Where are you going to get this living water? And who do you think you are? Are you greater than Jacob? So she heard what he said. Uh, he has her attention. So now taking this idea that he introduced to her of living water Jesus takes her to the subject of eternal life. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So that couldn't be clearer. He's promising her eternal life. This well of water springing up to eternal life is a metaphorical way of talking about the Holy Spirit when he comes into a person's life, dwells in a person, is present in a person. And that comes when we accept Jesus' Savior as our Savior and as our Lord, personally accept it. The Holy Spirit comes into our life. And, and we know this because John chapter 7 verse 38, Jesus uses the same metaphor there there he says, he who believes in me as the scripture said from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water and then John says, this is in John chapter 7, but this he spoke of the spirit of whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus there says from when you believe in him from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
And then John says of, he spoke of the Spirit when he said that. So that's how we know that's what he actually means back here in chapter 4. So the rivers of living water is a saving and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Okay? And that idea is very closely tied to the conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed he told him that I said to you you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone born of the spirit. The new birth is an internal transformation wrought in us by the Holy Spirit of God. Being saved has a lot of different aspects to it. Some of them are legal, like justification. When you're justified, that's Paul, Pauline language. When you're justified, God credits the righteousness of Christ to you. When you put your faith in him, you are legally declared righteous before God. That's a legal aspect of salvation. But there's a transformative aspect of salvation as well. A new heart, that's an Old Testament word, right? taking out the heart of stone and giving a person a heart of flesh, a soft heart towards God and towards the things of God and humble before God. New life, new heart. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 calls a person that's accepted Christ a new creature. Something radically different has happened to that person. The spirit of God is not stagnant water. He's living water. His streams flow into us. The stream of love pours into our heart. Ever flowing into us. It's a living water. It's not a stagnant water. Living water. That's what happens to you when you turn your life over to Jesus. That begins to happen in you and continues throughout your life. But our Samaritan girl doesn't know that yet. She doesn't get it. I think she's more cheeky than ever in her response in verse 15 um, now some people, you know, you could see it as a sincere statement or a sassy statement. I, I would say playfully impudent is the way my, I would say it. that would be my description. She's a little bit cheeky. The woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So she's not some simple peasant going, oh, do you really have living water? I can, she's, she's playing with him you know she doesn't really get what he's saying the spiritual aspect of this so it's more like okay mister let me have that water that would make a lot, my life a whole lot easier that's that's the that's the attitude I think and uh, one reason I, I don't think this is a humble serious thing or she actually believes it is because of how Jesus quickly turns the conversation into a serious direction she's being too playful and he's going to turn it now um, and it's going to shock her okay because she's deflecting, um, unbelieving really, and he's, gonna, he's going to take her and focus her mind, her attention on her sin. That always has to happen if you're going to come to Christ. So verse 16, he said to her, this seems like a casual thing, but he knows what he's asking or saying. Go, call your husband and bring him back. Call your husband and come here. So now she's like taken aback, whatever sort of playful attitude she has is gone. Her face is straight. The, ma the smile is gone. But she tells him a true thing. She says, I have no husband. But there are things she's hiding. 
And the things she's hiding are shameful things. It's her, her reputation, uh, the reason she's not invited into decent people's homes. She doesn't know that the Son of God knows everything about her life. She doesn't know that. So verse 17, Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Thank you for telling me the truth. You don't have a husband. And then he tells her about her life and what he actually knows about her. So yeah, in her day, she lived a scandalous life. Now in modern America, she's a movie star. Um, she's, you know, today with pornography and mainstream movies and big time entertainers with way more partners than this lady ever had, she would just say something like, so? <laughs> but she knows it's a shameful way that she's living and has lived. And before God, the, the cheeky Samaritan woman feels conviction and she knows her life is a mess. She knows that. She knows she's done a lot of wrong things. But the amazement, I think, is, is the main feeling that she has. She's amazed that Jesus knows all about her life and recites her history. And that kind of information could only be known to somebody with some kind of supernatural knowledge. So she assumes that he's a prophet. Now that's a rare, rare thing. So, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she starts talking theology. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship, where men ought to worship. Now, some people think that's strange for her to go into that and maybe she's deflecting the conversation. I think there might be an element of truth there. I don't think it's strange though for her to ask a theological question when she finds out somebody's a prophet. You know, as a pastor, I got to tell you, you run into situations all the time in life where somebody finds out that you're a pastor and they start asking you theological questions in environments where that just doesn't fit. It happens all the time. Um, prisons, street people, sheriff's deputies. I was doing a ride along with a sheriff's deputy. You know what he found out I was a pastor? Hey, so what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, well, what about this? And what about that? I mean, that was the whole conversation until we started arresting people. But... Um, <laughs> I was visiting a, a lady in the hospital one time and um, you know just there to comfort her and be there for her and the doctor found out I was her pastor and she's laying there and he's on this side of the table and I'm on this side of the table. He started telling me all of his theories about the end times and eschatology and Jesus coming back and, he's, it, and I mean he went on all about it. He had papers he wanted to show me and all this. She's laying there you know wanting to be ministered to by a doctor and he wanted to have that conversation. It's not unusual for those kind of things to happen so I think hey this guy might have some, an interesting take on my personal ideas or the things I've always heard and probably she genuinely had that question, are the Jews right or are we right? That was probably a real question. Now is it a handy thing for her to deflect from her sin to talk about? Yeah, probably both of those things are in order but I think it's a real question because Jesus gives her a real answer. He's not mess, he doesn't, he doesn't just say hey you're trying to get off the subject there. He doesn't do that. He actually gives her a direct answer. So. Who's right? The Jews or the Samaritans? Here's his answer. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So his job isn't to scold her about her sin. His job is to bring her into the kingdom. And since she brought up which is the true way, he's telling her. He's offering her that. He's talking about, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about a sea change. I mean a huge change in worship from everything the Jews and the Samaritans ever understood or knew. There's so much in these very few sentences here that he says so very much. But verse 22 shows that Jesus is certainly not politically correct or culturally acceptable in the 21st century. Doesn't he know that truth is a social construct? Doesn't he know that? He should know that. He's God, right? Doesn't he know that truth is relative? No, he doesn't know that. Doesn't he know, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. He doesn't know that. He is all about the truth. What Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth. That's the way you have to say it to modern society. True truth. Objective. Real truth. Right? Well you're not allowed to say that. Jesus you're supposed to love people. There's nothing more loving that he could do for this woman than tell her the truth. That's the most loving thing you can do is tell people the truth. Not just what they want to hear. Not to affirm their truth but what is true what actually is objectively true so she asked and he's telling her that the Samaritans have twisted and diminished the faith to a dangerous point so when he says salvation is from the Jews he's saying that that's where the information is that you're seeking to know what's true and what's not true the Samaritans had an interesting faith. They, they uh, after the priest came back, you know, from the king of Assyria and all that stuff, and they sort of reestablished a, a sort of semi-Jewish faith, but it was on, they only recognized the books of Moses, the first five books in the Bible. All the rest of it they didn't acknowledge at all as scripture. So not the history books, not the Psalms, not the writings of the prophets. And that puts them at great risk because much of what God has promised and uh, foretold is in those other books. The law only goes so far and those other books add so much but the Samaritans did not read them. Now could Jewish ideas have also filtered into their religion? Of course it's just all this interaction all this stuff. But they didn't have Isaiah 9 6 where Messiah is called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. They didn't have that. They didn't have Isaiah 11 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. They didn't know that about the Messiah. Or Isaiah 53 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. They didn't have that. By his scourging we are healed. Jeremiah 33 15, in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. They didn't have that. She didn't have Micah chapter 5, but as for you Bethlehem Ephrathah too little to be among the clans of Judah but from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. She didn't have that information. She didn't know that. 
those, those texts and so many, many more, she didn't know, or probably didn't know. She may have heard bits and pieces through just talk. But any common Jewish interpretations of things, she would have filtered through a Samaritan cultural mindset. Biblically, the Samaritans did believe a Messiah was coming from, from Moses, from Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your countrymen and you shall listen to him. She did, would have known that. And that fits perfectly with what she says to Jesus in verse 25 of, of verse chapter 4. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She knows that much. She knows there's a Messiah coming and that he'll have the truth. So whatever Jesus is saying to her, She's saying, well, I do know that when Messiah comes, she believes he's a prophet or thinks he's a prophet. But she says, I know when the Messiah comes, he will declare all things to us. There is a truth out there. She believes that. There's a truth to come. Not her truth or somebody else's truth. The truth. There's a truth. And Messiah will come one day and the truth will be known. And Jesus tells her, I who speak to you am he. Wow. Then the disciples show up bringing groceries. <laughs> at that very moment. And she grabs her jar and she runs off to the town. And, but wonderful things happen. But we're out of time. <laughs> so next time come back. And we're going to come back actually. We're going to back up and look at verse 21 through 24. And what Jesus says there next week. And then we'll continue on with the story here. But uh, what is it? What does it mean worship in spirit and in truth? That's what we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we cannot, well, we cannot be cheeky with you, our creator. Men have titles and positions, but you are our maker, our judge, our sovereign. There is a right way to worship you, not in a location, but in our hearts. We must seek the living water, the spirit that you give to all who humbly turn to you from their sin and their pride. Grant us always this humility, we ask in the name of the one who loved this sinful woman. Amen.